Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Gilda Evans, bringing you the Autism Resource Podcast. This podcast and the ARP website are your one-stop knowledge and resource base for autism and much more. I'm honored to have Dr. Leonard Abaduto as my guest today. Dr. Abaduto is the director of the Mind Institute, the Tsakopoulos Vismara Endowed Chair, and professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of California, Davis. His research is focused on the development of language across the lifespan in individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. He has published more than 200 articles, chapters, reviews, and books on Fragile X Syndrome, Autism, Down Syndrome, and Child Development. He serves as Principal Investigator and Director of the Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Research Center, which provides core support to more than 80 projects and 40 scientists at the UC Davis Mind Institute. Dr. Abaduto has received numerous awards and recognition for his groundbreaking research. Welcome, Len, and thank you so much for taking time to join me today to discuss the incredible work that you do. Well, thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate your help in getting the word out. So to begin with, I understand that families played a vital role in the creation of the Mind Institute. Can you elaborate on that for me? Yeah, it's actually, it's a really interesting, I think, unique history. Um, it's the early 1990s, and there were a number of families in Northern California that uh, had sons with autism, uh, at least for our founding families, although many other families were involved. And I think these families, like every parent, is motivated to help their children and help other children along the way. And they faced the fact that in the early 1990s, not much was known about autism. And so they were really interested in spurring research so they could understand ways to, to help families that are affected by autism uh, kind of live their best lives. And they also <clears throat> had really, I'd say, not very positive interactions with um, healthcare systems. Um, for example, one of the families, when they received the diagnosis of their son, and remember, this is the early 1990s, maybe he was three at the time, they were told that the best thing they could do would be to uh, put them in an institution, get on with their lives and forget about them. Oh my God. And, and so it was kind of all of the lack of awareness, the lack of sensitivity that really led them to want something better. And um, they were uh, very persistent. Um, it took them a while to get traction, but they were able to get uh, a, uh, they got collaborators and, and kind of champions at UC Davis um, in the health system in particular, and they got champions in the uh, California legislature. And so they actually got legislation passed in 1998 to create the Mind Institute as a part of uh, University of California, Davis. And it started uh, in 1998 with, I think, one faculty member, one graduate student, and one assistant in kind of the basement of a building here on campus. And then we opened our two-building complex in 2003. Um, and uh, the thing that is so interesting about the Mind Institute to, for me, and I, I came here in 2011, is that all of the things that make it special were really things that the families envisioned. So for example, they really wanted it to be a place where there was not 
uh, academic silos, that there was not competition among investigators to make discoveries, but there really was everyone that studies the brain and development were working together collaboratively. And we have something like, you know, uh, more than 60 faculty that come from 25 different academic departments, five schools and colleges on this campus, all working together. And they also wanted us to be really focused on families, that this is not just about uh, a diagnosis within a child or an individual. This is really about how families uh, are, are impacted and how they can be supported. And I think we, we kind of honor that tradition. Um, so, you know, uh, the families got it right. They knew the needs. They knew how we should be organized to be maximally effective. And, uh, uh, it, uh, and the other thing I'll say um, is that it really has created a culture at the Mind Institute that uh, feels a sense of urgency that families feel about finding ways to help uh, uh, individuals that need assistance and families that want to live their best lives and want the best for their children. And so uh, there is that sense of urgency that everyone feels, whether they work on cells or whether they're an administrative assistant or they're a clinician, everyone feels that same uh, sense of urgency to, to do better for families. What a wonderful philosophy. I really love what I'm hearing you say there. Um, so tell me then, what are some of the ways that the Mind Institute has changed since it opened in 2003? Yeah, thank you. It's a really good question. I mean, I think we're pretty dynamic and we certainly have grown in size. Uh, we've added a, number, a lot more faculty. Um, I'd say the biggest changes, though, are really from the, even though we kind of uh, began around autism, I think very early on, there was a recognition that um, we can learn uh, from research and clinical uh, activities around other conditions, and that doing work on autism can inform these other conditions. So very early on, we became, even though art, autism is kind of at our core, we, we study more, we study fragile X syndrome, which is the leading inherited cause of intellectual disability and the leading single gene cause of autism. We study Down syndrome. We study um, 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome, which is associated with some intellectual disabilities and with uh, schizophrenia risk um, and other conditions as well. And so I think that that's been a, a kind of a big change early on. I'd say the other, uh, another big change is that at the beginning, I think the, the, Institute focused really on young children and the idea being that, you know, we want, if we can understand more about how to kind of jumpstart in a more positive way, early development, that that can have kind of a lasting effects because you change their trajectory. And I think that that's true, but I think we are now much more focused on kind of a lifespan approach. And so we have um, not only real strengths and in early intervention, but we are developing really innovative programs to support um, adults who have uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities of various kinds um, as well. And so I think that that's been a big change. And probably I'd say the last uh, um, big change is that we are really, even though we feel like we're kind of leaders in so many areas, but we also recognize that there's more power in numbers and being parts of networks. And so we belong to a number of national networks um, around training, around um, kind of policy work and around research. And I think that's helped to make us better because we, we can partner with other people around the country that have similar sorts of uh, um, commitments and a mission. 
Well, now we know there's been a lot of technological development in the last couple of decades. So how has this technology, how is it changing the research and services for people with autism and related diagnoses? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, one of the things that I think we've all learned uh, through the pandemic is uh, uh, video teleconferencing is, uh, you know, kind of our lifeline to each other when when we can't be face to face. And so um, I think one of the things that we've been able to, to do clinically is to really um, uh, kind of evaluate our clinical practices and, and really take a look and say, well, what is it that we have to do face-to-face? -face? And are there things that we thought we had to do face-to-face -face that we can actually do really effectively uh, at a distance through uh, video teleconferencing? And I think we've learned that there's a lot more that we can do. Um, at the same time, we've also recognized that, you know, as we innovate and as we do things at a distance, we have to make sure that it works, that it's evidence-based. And so we have a lot more research around different kind of telehealth uh, practices and assessments. I have colleagues who are developing methods of doing uh, early diagnostic assessments, cognitive assessments, play assessments of children at a distance. And the idea being that what we don't want to do is just shift everything to, to uh, things that seem to, to make life more convenient, but we really want to make sure that these things work and that they're effective and that they're valid diagnostic procedures or valid therapies. Um, and so I think that's a space where we're doing a lot. And I'll just give you kind of one example uh, from my lab. We uh, started several years ago to do what we called parent-implemented language interventions. And the idea with these interventions is that, you know, oftentimes kids will get an hour to a week of speech therapy. And even though we know that they could benefit from having more uh, therapy. And so in these parent implemented language interventions, what we do is we teach parents how to also be therapists, the things that they can do to complement what the speech language therapist is, do, is doing. And the idea being that they know their children best, they spend more time with their children. So if we can give them ways of kind of leveraging their interactions with their children to kind of foster development, that that's a good thing. Um, but what we did that I think was innovative is that we did that we did this training of parents all through uh, telehealth, all through video teleconferencing. So while they're in their homes interacting with their kids, we could train them and we could coach them in real time using kind of a Bluetooth technology so that we could give them advice as they're doing it in real time uh, on ways to help their children. And, um, you know, and I have to say, you know, one of the first sessions we did, I, um, I was a little skeptical that this was going to work. But when we kind of at the appointed time, everyone turned on all of their technology. There was a mom and the child in their pajamas in front of the fire in the living room, ready to do treatment. <laughs> now, that just seemed like that's how you should do it. You know, that's comfortable, great. ain't not anxiety provoking. And for the child with the people that matter in the settings that matter. And, um, and so we've kind of extended that. So now we do it not only with children, we've been able to show that we can produce change uh, in uh, adolescents that have uh, pretty significant disabilities and that they can benefit from these interactions with their parents. We do them in different ways. Um, and then we find that the parents can learn these strategies. Some have more difficulty than others, but the most important thing is that um, the families, the parents feel more connected to their children. They feel more conversant with the therapists, and they feel like they um, uh, can play a role in, in helping their children. I, and I often worry sometimes that as professionals, that we sometimes 
make parents feel that that they need that they have no role right that it's the professional that knows the best and and i think that we want parents to be partners and so um so i think those kinds of technologies have helped we're also using artificial intelligence to help with kind of uh better screening and diagnostic procedures and things like that so i mean there there are lots of ways that i think technology can uh, allow us to work more efficiently to uh, make access to care better for families uh all families uh and um um, just to, to do a better job. Well, I love the idea of teamwork, of really making it um, an effort between the doctors and the parents and the family, um, making it a very holistic approach. Um, I would think that that is really ideal, that that's and, and probably the most effective approach, it would seem to me. Um, and also the teleconferencing, I think, is something that enables you to treat and to um, offer different kinds of therapies and so forth to families and to people outside of your geographic area. I mean, how, uh, what is the, the furthest uh, away client that you have that you're working with right now? Well, and so it's a little bit different for clinical services and research. And so in our very first project that we did where we were doing these parent implemented language interventions, I think we had like in this first study, it was very small. We had 12 families participate. And I think they came from six different states in the United States. And one of them was from Canada as well. And so the reach is potentially very, very wide. I mean, there are some barriers on the clinical side in terms of um, practices that you can do across state lines. And so they're kind of bureaucratic. Um, some of the bureaucratic issues have not caught up to the technology, but it's one of those where I think as more, as this becomes more commonplace, as we develop more of an evidence base that this is effective, I think those kind of bureaucratic barriers will eventually uh, be solved. And, and I think that that will be to the benefit of, of families, particularly for families where they have, um, you know, for rare conditions, like uh, I had mentioned Fragile X syndrome, which is probably one in four to 8,000 uh, individuals affected with Fragile X syndrome, there, because it's so rare, it's harder to find in your geographical area sometimes a professional who's knowledgeable. Now, if you can have access to people all over the country, all, all over the world, all of a sudden, uh, you're, you have access to the best care for your child. And so I, I do think that the issue of access is really essentially going to begin to break down some of these uh, bureaucratic and, and logistical barriers that we're seeing. Well, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. And I, I agree with what you're saying 100%. Now, I have heard that early diagnosis is very important. Can you elaborate on that and tell us why? I think that the early diagnosis is important because particularly in certainly in the area of, of autism, but I think for other conditions as well, though, you know, we know that the earlier we start children and families on um, kind of a the most uh, optimal path for them, the better. Um, it doesn't solve everything, but I think if we can, the earlier we start, we often see much better trajectories for children. And so um, there's a lot of effort to trying to get earlier and earlier and earlier in terms of being able to diagnose uh, children with autism or other conditions. Um, and I think that that also 
has, I think, the benefit of connecting families to resources so that parents don't feel like it, they're, in the, they're, they're in it alone necessarily. Because often what we hear is that, um, and I think this is changing, you know, parents will, will voice concerns to their family pediatrician, and often there's kind of a wait-and-see attitude. Let's, let's just see. You know, there's a wide range of, of average, and so maybe he or she's just a, developing a little slower. And I think that you certainly don't want to kind of overdiagnose or get families concerned when there's not a reason to be concerned. But I think there's also the risk of your missing opportunities to help the family, give them resources, validate their concerns, and then provide help for children. So I think um, you know, families get connected to resources. They get connected to other families who can help them as well. So I, again, I think the earlier we can get people help, the better. I mean, certainly... We wouldn't, we wouldn't question that in the case of cancer, right? Early diagnosis, we know helps because you can start treatment. I think it's the same thing for these uh, more complicated uh, behavioral health conditions where if we can get everyone help and get them on a better path, get them resources, um, and put some of the control in their hands, I think that that's really helpful. We've started a program kind of related to that uh, family navigator program where families who I have kind of older children who have kind of gone through the diagnostic process with some training. They become advocates and navigators of the social service and educational system for younger families. And the idea being that, um, you know, connecting to other families, I think, is really important. And again, if you can do that early, then your 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 life is is better because you're kind of in a network that can provide help. Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. And also, a lot of parents, once the child has grown and gotten older, a lot of parents are very concerned about, well, what happens when my child transitions out of high school? What happens when they move on and beyond into adulthood now? I know that there is a relatively new, I believe, college program uh, that the Mind Institute created for people with intellectual disabilities there at UC Davis. Please talk about that just a bit. Yeah, so uh, we're really uh, very proud of this program. Um, it's a, it's um, started with a grant from the U.S. Department of Education, and it's a four-year inclusive college program. It's not degree granting at this point, but um, the um, it's residential, and uh, we have a cohort right now of uh, ten students, uh, young adults who are in the program, and they um, participate in a variety of educational classes that are uh, especially designed for them. They also participate alongside other UC Davis undergraduates in, in courses. They're in a class right now, Nutrition 10, which is one of the most popular freshman classes at UC Davis with 500 students. Um, and they're, uh, they're members of that class. They also have, um, they uh, right now all of them are living in the dorms and in the dorms are with other uh, UC Davis undergraduates. They have peer mentors to help them with academics and tutoring, peer mentors who help them uh, kind of adjust to residence life, uh, and peer mentors to help them with social activities and leisure and health. And um, the what's been so rewarding about the program is that it fills such a need for families. Um, it's beginning to fill the need for families. We're the only program, four-year inclusive residential program in the state of California right now. And for we had 64 applications for our uh, small number of slots the first time. We've just opened the applications for the second year. We'll add another cohort of 12 and then another whole cohort of 12. Um, 
Um, and uh, the data from programs that like this that exists around the country uh, is much better in terms of employment outcomes and things like that for folks. And so we have a big emphasis on doing internships on campus and then gradually off campus and then developing those into jobs. We have uh, developing partnerships with uh, a couple of Fortune 500 companies that want to help um, develop jobs uh, for our um our students when they graduate. And so we're really excited about this program because we think it gives families um, an option that wasn't there and that should be there. So they should have the same uh, right to, to go to post-secondary education as everyone else. And it just hasn't been there before. And I think, uh, I hope that will also make um, the secondary education better because they'll be preparing these young folks for something different that wasn't there before. And so, um, uh, and I'll say that um, watching even in, in the short time these students have been in the program, to see their growth is amazing. They have friendships that they didn't have before. They've learned things that they haven't done before. They navigate this incredibly large campus um, independently. Um, and so uh, it's, you know, when you provide people opportunities for growth, not surprisingly, they grow. And I think we just need to do more of that for these students. That sounds like an absolutely fantastic program. And what a wonderful thing for people to know about and be aware of and, and know is there and available. So at this point, Lynn, I, I want to ask you, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to add? And what do you feel is the most important takeaway for our listeners to remember from our conversation? Well, you know, I guess I would go back to, uh, I mean, I don't always like to get stuck in history, but I think the history of the Mind Institute that it was really shaped by families, I think is for me a really important lesson because I think that families often feel like they have no impact, but I've seen it in other areas in terms of funding at the National Institutes of Health for Research. You know, when families band together, they can have an impact. And, and I think the Mind Institute is, is just a great example of this. We exist because of families we're successful because the families had the vision and they continue to partner with us. Um, and uh, I just want families to know that they are the ones that produce the change. You know, I think we scientists and other experts, we're along for the ride. We're, we're here to help and we're here to learn from the families. Um, sometimes we forget that, but I think it's really important. This is really about families. So then tell me, how can our listeners and the families who are tuning in how can they reach you if they have questions or if they want to know more? Sure. If they can certainly go to our website, there's lots of information there. And we have uh, information about this new college program, which is called the Redwood Seed Scholar Program. It's at uh, uh, mineinstitute.org, or you can just Google UC Davis Mine Institute. Um, they're also welcome to email me anytime they want. And uh, it's L-J-A-B-B-E-D-U-T-O at ucdavis.edu. And I try to be really good about answering uh, emails right away. So it's just LJ with my last name at ucdavis.edu. Um, and I'm always happy to hear from families. It's, this is, uh, it's a privilege to do what we do. Well, thank you so much, Len, for your time and for sharing some really wonderful information with us today. Well, thank you, Gilda. It's been a pleasure. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast. You can find it on Apple iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other popular platforms. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always access us and other great resources on our website, 
www.autismresourcepodcast.com. I want to thank our listeners for spending part of their day with us. This is the Autism Resource Podcast, and I'm Gilda Evans reminding you to take care of yourself and that special person in your life.